Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning out there in Blog Talk Radio land. So happy to be with you guys here as we starting to wind down summer, y'all. Hope y'all getting in y'all last minute fun. I know here in Tennessee school where I live, Tennessee's kicking off this Wednesday starts the school season. So for a lot of kids, this is coming down to the end of summer. Some start later in August, but I hope y'all getting out to the beach and the pool and having your family reunions and just enjoying as we come down again to the end of summer. Because we're in a welcoming you to the very first Saturday in August, August the 3rd. So it is beautiful out here. So wherever you are, I want to thank you for tuning in to Off the Shelf and to our listeners who've been with us for 14 years. We've been on the air. We started over at Rainbow Soul. You can still catch us over there and so many places to listen to Off the Shelf. I want to thank our loyal listeners. And for those that's your first time tuning in, welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf. And, yes, you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio. I want to drop this thought with you before I launch into the show and bring on our awesome guest. And today's thought is from Charles Buxton, and it is, You will never find time for anything. If you want time, you must make it. You have to go out there and make the time because that clock is ticking. That's something to think about even, again, as we wrapping up summer and how quickly does summer go. So welcome, welcome again. We have an awesome, talented author on deck for today's Off the Shelf and can't wait to introduce her to you. But first, I want to ask you Off the Shelf listeners, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Do you think you can finger the person who's responsible for the murder mystery that cloaks Raymond and his friends' lives? Is that something that you I, – I love I love mysteries. I watch shows, even if it's a true life, I try to figure out what happened and who did it and why they did it before it's revealed on the show, even if it's a, a real-life show. If you're one of those, I encourage you to hop over to Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, ebook in so many places, and pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me Now. You can get it in ebook or print. And my next question for you is how much do you value relationships and love? How long would you wait to experience a once-in-a-lifetime romance, the kind of romance that can open you up to so much Brilliance, revelation, and insight that only a few people get to enjoy. How long would you wait? And would you wait as long as Raymond and Brenda? Do you think it will be worth it if the love that you wanted and was that was right for you didn't come right away? But it's going to come. It's going to come. If you value that, you value friendships, you value family relationships, because there's a complicated father-son relationship in the book. I encourage you again to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. You can just go on over to Amazon and get your copy today and start reading it today, ebook or print format. Please go get a copy of Love Pour Over Me and let me know how you enjoy the book. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Sheila Bell. Now, Sheila is a best-selling Christian book Writer, She has written more than 20 books. Titles that she has authored include My Brother, Father, and Me, The Real Housewives, I love that, I love that title, The Real Housewives of an Adverse City, My Son's Wife, and My Sister, My Mama, My Wife. For her work, Sheila has won numerous awards, including the 2017 Christian Literary Reader's Choice Award, the 2015 Rosa Parks Awards, Kudos on that. The 2014th Christian Literary Award and the AAMBC Nate Holmes Honorary Award. Kindle Award, OOSA Book of the Year, and numerous SORMAG Awards. She is also a public speaker, editor, and founder of the Black Writers and Book Clubs Literary Association. Please hop on over and visit Ms. Sheila Bell online at SheilaWritesBooks.com, and that's S-H-E. L-I-A-W-R-I-T-E-S-B-O-O-K-S.com. Again, that's S-H-E-I-S-H-E-L-I-A-W-R-I-T-E-S-B-O-O-K-S.com. SheilaWritesBooks.com. 
We're delighted to have Sheila with us this morning. You guys, welcome to Off the Shelf, Sheila. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here this morning, Denise. How are you? I am. I am so blessed. And you know, I was I was researching for your interview, and I always learn so much when I'm researching for uh, the guest interviews. And I really value our listeners and the show. I put put time in before the show, during, and after the show. So I, when I research it, uh, it's just interesting to learn about the different books you've written, and we want to dive into those today and, and, and looking forward to what you share with our listeners here this morning. The first few questions I ask, Sheila, I ask every single guest because our readers wanted to know a little bit about uh, each author before I started asking them questions about their book. So the, to begin, could you, Sheila, please tell off the shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Okay, well, uh, I grew up in the South in uh, the city of Memphis, uh, the state of Tennessee. And uh, I guess I would say that my childhood was uh, a good childhood, but it was also a um troubling or, or trying time in my life because at uh, age of two, well, 18 months old, I had undergone open-heart surgery, and six oh. months after that, um, I contracted polio, and that was basically uh, because what they say was, you know, low resistance, and even though the polio vaccine was out then, but needless to say, um, I guess that really set the tone probably for my life, but just growing up with polio and then going to public school system, I was the only child there who had any type of physical disability. So the kids that go through this thing now, they call bullying and all of that. I mean, I could write a 10 books on that, you know, about how to overcome and persevere. But other than that, my actual childhood, as far as my family life and all of that, I was the baby. So I had a great childhood other than the physical um, ailments, about 15 surgeries, having to still wear braces and crutches and dealing with that. But I believe, again, this made me who I am. And probably I would have had a different path, I guess, had I not um, had the polio. That's how I'm beginning to look at it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, 18 months. Oh, I know your parents was. oh, they must, oh, my God. Well, you know what? We glad you pulled on through. Oh, I can only imagine. Oh my gosh! I did just eighteen months in your child having open heart surgery, but praise the Lord, and we're grateful that you made it through. And now you're sharing those great, your own personal story, which is inspiring and and encouraging. And also writing these fabulous novels. But before we get to those novels, can you tell us what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid, Sheila? Oh, that is going to be so funny. At first, I used to, <laughs> this is funny even to me, I guess. I used to want to, I wanted to grow up, and I wanted a station wagon and 12 children. Can you believe that? <laughs> oh, 12 kids? That oh, my goodness. My I don't know where I got that from. I always wanted a station wagon and 12 children. Thank God God did hear that. I mean, answer that prayer. But in a way, he did because I have such a love for children and so many countless children. God is blessed to come into my life. I have two sons, three grandsons, two two great granddaughters. But besides that, I have countless uh, children by love and grandchildren by love. So, and really, in a way, that that dream or desire in my heart did come true. And outside of that, as I got older. I, again, loving to work with children, I wanted to be a nurse or perhaps a lawyer, but a path took a different turn, and I ended up um, going to school, got pregnant, at, at, was a teenage mother, and so that changed my life trajectory, I guess, and I decided to go to a trade school instead, and um took a secretarial course and became administrative assistant and a stenographer. And so that was my career, which is very satisfying as well, because that moved me up in the corporate ladder until uh, about 2002 when I um, retired on disability due to my polio and some complications. But uh, let's see, other than that, I don't even know what the question was. Denise. I just yeah, that. what did you 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 wanted to? What did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? And you said 
You wanted a station wagon and 12 kids. <laughs> oh, my God. You, I got to tell you, Sheila, 14 years doing off the shelf, that's a first. <laughs> that's a first. I never, We never had a guest say, that's what they wanted when they were, that's a first. But now you do have, you know, you got your grand, you said, and so your family, you did kind of in a way get yeah. that, that dream fulfilled. I'm not sure if you got that station wagon, but you did get your... Yeah, yeah, no, but I had a station wagon. Yeah, I've had that. You know, of course, it didn't look like the typical station wagon back in the day. It was more less the, you know, a smaller version, a little hatchback or whatever. But it was my version of a station wagon. So I guess I did get that as well. You did look like your dream did come true in a roundabout way. (laughs) How old were you, Sheila? You've written so many books and won so many awards. How old were you when you knew? that you wanted to be a writer? Well, you know, I guess in a way, I guess no question for me, I guess I can just come out and say it's simple to answer because I really didn't know that. I just knew that, uh, again, going back to my polio, I spent so much time in the hospital away from my family. And at that time, the segregation was rampant and my parents couldn't come to see me, but I think once a week and that was one hour uh, and that was at the Crippled Children's Hospital that was in Memphis. So a lot of I spent a lot of isolated time alone as as a little girl, and I believe that's where my imagination began to blossom and take root. But I never thought about it, uh, about being a writer. Now, as I got older, I went to school in the hospital sometimes. And so, uh, but as I got older, I began to uh, read more because there used to be a little bookmobile cart that a nurse would bring around. So that introduced me to reading and helped me to, I guess, get into my own world and not focus so much even as a kid on crying and missing my mom and dad as a little girl. But after that, uh, as I grew up, I began to love poetry, began to love writing. And then when I did attend public school, English and writing was always my favorite subject. I was the first one wanting to write the essays. And so I guess inside of my spirit, it had been embedded in me, but I never put a label on it. And I just went on through life writing speeches for other uh, people to speak at churches. And I did perform poems at churches that I had memorized from school, and I would do that. But, again, that writing book never came to me except for other people. And um, it wasn't until a tragedy in my life occurred back in 1997 when I was supposed to be getting married and my fiancé was bludgeoned or murdered. And so uh, that was so... so, difficult or such a difficult time for me that one of the pastors told me to you know I should she suggested journaling and really that's how I started you know because I was just so suicidal I was just hurt and destroyed over that you know the way he was murdered and the way things happened mm-hmm. but that journaling you know it just kept me it 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 really saved me and so I began to journal and journal. I journaled about the relationship. I journaled about life and and about five or six big journals, those eight by ten journals later, I excelled. I excelled and I was just like, I'm done. And it was like the grief process that journaling had helped me uh, mm. through the grief process. And then after that, going back, looking at it, I was just like, man, wonder if this could help somebody else. You know, I, maybe I can put this in a book form. That's how it came about. Not say, oh, I want to be an author or this writer. It was just like, maybe you can put it in book form and you can have it, you know, just for someone else to read later. And that's how it started. And it was such a difficult journey because I couldn't find, I didn't know anything about the publishing industry. And and, and you stop me, Denise, because I'll go on. Stop me when it's time for me to take a break, but, you know, I didn't know anything about the publishing industry, but again, having polio, I had a type A or still have a type A personality, and I learned that, you know, whenever someone said you can't do something, I was just the opposite. I had to prove that I could do it, and I'm still like that today. You know, that can work for you, and sometimes it can work against you, but uh, in this case, I was determined to get that in print, and I searched around and searched around, and I found uh writing groups and things of that nature because self-publishing back then 20 years ago was frowned upon. You didn't want anyone to know that you independently yes. publish your book. 
Yes. And you should know that. Yeah, you didn't want anybody to know that that was a no-no because that yeah. means you weren't, you didn't really make it. Nobody was interested in you for real. And I kept sending off my, my manuscript and I kept getting all these rejection letters saying, oh, it's wonderful, it's, it's gut-wrenching, but, you know, we can't use it right now. You know, all those uh, but letters. So, but I was determined. And so finally I found a group to help me. And uh, I put it in print, and I've since then I've rewritten it a little because I've learned so much since that first book, which was always Nine Forever Love Hurts. And that was basically um, a loose story on my life and what I had gone through. I fictionalized it a little bit. And then from there, my first nonfiction book called A Christian's Perspective, Journey Through Grief. That was a, the, you know, the real account of the grief process. And I still have that book that I really bless others with who I know or find out have lost loved ones. So that's how the journey got started. Oh, my and God. You know, today. And we don't know when it's, when, it's, uh, when it's happening, what's going on with us. You know, so many people who've come on the show, the different ways they got into their writing career. Some say they just knew when they were kids. Some, it was a dare, somebody dared them to enter a writing contest, and that's how they got started. But you never know 10, 20, 30 years later where you're, where you're going to be. You just keep following the yellow brick road, and then you just yes, end up somewhere that you it. never thought in a million years you would be in a in a certain spot where you where you are um I wanted to ask you, so you, what was your, what were you doing before you actually? We, know, I know about the the, um, the experience you had with your fiance, and then you did your your journaling to help heal through that grieving process. But like career wise, what were you doing before you launched, you you published your first book? Well, your day I job. was working. Okay, my day job. I was working in corporate America for. Uh, a very large manufacturing industry company, and I was a com- well. I started out as administrative assistant, then went to senior administrative assistant, and then I became a compensation analyst. So uh, that was my career basically. I've been an office manager, but everything was you know in the office as far as administrative cash. So that's in compensation. So that was my career focus and in the background of course I was still um, volunteering to work with children and just doing whatever I could to make a difference in my community and in the lives of uh, of kids especially boys because I just had a and I still do just just I'm drawn to boys and so um, you know having sons and having grandsons then that helped me be able to even just mentor some of their friends or just try to be a positive person in the lives of other kids. Oh, what a blessing. What a blessing. You are one prolific writer. <laughs> I love that. Real Thank quick you. Research for your interview. How many books do you write a year? I really don't keep track, but at least, I mean, I would probably say just a couple, two or three a book, two or three books a year because my editing project, that's another thing I do, they keep me busy too. But when I was traditionally published, we were required to write one book a year. And if you tried to do more than that in the beginning, you know, they still didn't publish it unless they had a slot. But uh, back then, in those t- that time when I was traditionally published, then I had had to write one book. Now I do two, maybe three. And really with the series that I write, I definitely have to do at least two because I have to do one for each one of those series books. Oh, my goodness. You, 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 you pumping them out. Oh, my goodness. Can you t- introduce off-the-shelf listeners to the three women in Beautiful Ugly? Oh, my God. <laughs> Layla I'm, Casey. I'm trying to touch on a couple of books. You pause for a minute before we get to the Real Housewives. But could you introduce us to those three women, please? Oh, in Beautiful Ugly, you have Layla, Casey, and Envy, and those three girls are what three ladies. You know, to me, I just love them because they represent realness. And that's one thing uh, about my books that I, I like to really try to focus in on is realistic 
stories, realistic things that that could happen, have happened, might happen. You know somebody may have happened, but with Kayla, I mean, with uh, Casey, Layla, and Envy, they're just your typical young ladies. Envy is successful, beautiful, you know, has it going on, nice job and everything, nice crib. Then you have Layla. Layla is battling the, the uh, scale, and, I mean, she's really battling that scale, and when you're battling the scale like she is, you know, just she's really overweight, and she has a lot of self-esteem issues, low self-consciousness, and the reason I try to write about characters like that, you know, my, my tagline is perfect stories about imperfect people like you and me, and with her, you know, I've dealt with low self-esteem, low self-consciousness, feelings of not being um good enough because of my polio and because of how people bullied me so badly in school and growing up and even as a young adult, it just gave me, it, it sort of stripped me of all of that, um, those I can do whatever I, I want to do feelings that my parents instilled in me. And so I sort of identified with Layla because of the battles that she had. She had a beautiful singing voice, but she didn't see that. Because she was too focused on her imperfection and, you know, the things that she wished. You know, she lived in the project, which was okay. That's fine. She was a single girl. But she had, and she just accepted any person into her life. And then you have, you have Casey. Same way, Casey. Uh, I believe that character was really born out of me, too, because Casey, something you really don't read about a lot in novels, she had the, um, a physical disability, something like cerebral palsy, uh, which caused her to have a, a very gross limp in the way she walked, sort of bent to the knees. But, but again, low self-esteem and low self-consciousness is what she dealt with, which means she had five babies and five baby daddies. Does that mean that everybody it happens like that for everybody? No. It just means that because of how she felt about herself, she was just thinking, okay, this is the one. Okay, maybe this is the one. And so they were all involved, you know, they were involved in church. Some people have written me and said, well, how could they be, how could you say you write Christian fiction? These women got one, got five baby daddies, the other, you know, they fornicate because that's life. That's life. <laughs> I mean, that's life. You know, we sit up in church and we could go to church Sunday after Sunday. And then Sunday afternoon when we get out of church or before we come to church, it's no telling what's going on in our household. You know, I'm mm. not always as it seems. So this is that true. was what I was trying to pull out. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to pull out in those three friends. Their imperfections, but still the bond of friendship and acceptance for each other. The fact that even though you are my best friend, I'm going to tell you like it is. And that's what they were good at. They were good at telling each other the truth about each other. Oh, they started okay, so they Oh, now one one good reads reviewer said that MB, Lala, and Casey each have particular insecurities. So this is my question: you you've 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 done you've introduced us to these three women. How do they manage to keep their insecurities from destroying or sabotaging their friendship? Well, their friendships were always. Um well, I don't want to use that word always. Their friendships could be somewhat rocky, but the and when I say rocky, not the friendships really were never their friendships with each other was never in jeopardy. It's just that if you you and I are good friends and you're telling me something that's the truth, but I don't want to hear it. I'm not ready to hear it. Yeah, I may get an attitude, but you I may get mad at you. I may not answer the phone or your text for a couple of days, but if you're truly the friend, you don't pay. It's just like, okay, whatever you're going to tell you. And so that's what salvaged them because with the three of them, even if Casey and Layla were having some issues, maybe it was Envy who could bring it back around. You know, it was always one of them, one or more of them keeping everything going. So the friendship, that's why I believe identified true friendship because even though it was tested and tried, it was not severed. Ah, okay. And you know what? Yeah, in this world, our relationships do get tested and tried, and and but they were true, true friends. So through it all, they were they hung in there with each other. Now, what is adversity like? You hear adversity, so I'm thinking like the Real Housewives of 
Los Angeles or Atlanta or so we know these cities. You can you know even Google them. But can you describe for our off the shelf listeners what is Adverse City like? And is it it's like a spotlight location in your Real Housewives of Adverse Cities book series. What is this city like? What's going on there? Oh, this, well, Adverse City is really taking after the the uh, true to life island called Fisher Island in Florida, ah. and it's the richest zip code in the country. Okay, and it's just a and it's just a small island, but it has the some of, again some of the wealthiest people that you probably haven't even heard. I mean, we, I know I haven't. I mean, but because you never know who has it and who ha- doesn't have it, but that's where that. Uh, the location is taken from adverse city, and of course the title is really just a play on words adversity, because these women face a lot of adversity in their life, just like we do every day. You know, we all types of battles and situations and circumstances in life, but the fictional um, adverse city is based on Fisher Island, which is why these ladies live luxurious, uh, rich, and fabulous lives. So Fisher Island is just, it's full of, you know, it has the boats, the yachts. It's not huge, uh, but it has the private clubs, the private beaches. So it's a place that really I was like, gosh, I would love to go there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe one day I will. <laughs> and, you know, I can't even remember how I found out about Fisher Island. It's you know, when you're a writer, you know. You know, you research it, and I don't know. In my research, I ran across this this place called Fisher Island, and that's how I incorporated it into my book. Never even heard of it. Now that when I get off this interview, I'm definitely gonna Google Fisher Island, Florida, because you know you always yeah. hear about Palm Beach and you, you hear about the different places, but that's not. Um, Beverly Hills, but I, that one I hadn't heard about. Now, do Avery? Yeah, we that. No, that's a hidden secret. Do Avery, yeah. Eva, Peyton, and 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 Miss Misha, do they have their own money, or does all of their money come from a man they're in a relationship with? Well, Peyton had her own. Her family already had money, and Peyton um, has her own money. And she is not, well, she doesn't mind reminding her husband that it was her and her family who helped get him started. You know, and so that's where some conflicts may lie in their relationship because she's bringing it up, even though he's become hugely successful now because he developed this app and uh, sold for millions of dollars. And since then, he's developed another um app. So he's um, really wealthy now in his own right. He's the president of the bank. And so he's wealthy in his own right now. But she does have her own money. As for, for And they're the richest of the four. Uh, Misha, no, she didn't really have her own mother. Ava, Eva, no, none, none of the rest of them did. Only Peyton. Oh, Peyton had her own money. So what did her yeah. family do? Where they got their money from. Her husband got his from an app. But yeah, where they did were her... in finances, too. Yeah, yeah. But they were in the banking industry as well. Okay. Uh, you don't hear a lot about them, their family. But, yes, they came from that industry as well, the finance industry. And so she really uh, just born with a silver spoon in her mouth. So she had her own money, went to college. That's where she met uh, Misha's husband, Carlton. But that's a whole different story. They became friends with but yes, yeah, she had her own. Now, why, why can't these four women get their lives together? Being they have money, they got their, their, they got the the husband, worldly comforts and luxury. Why do they keep running into so much trouble? Well, you know, that's something I would like to know too. I guess it's just <laughs> life because I, I mean, really, when I write. It's just, of course, you've heard this before, I know. You know, the characters take over and you don't, and they really and truly do. So when I'm writing, I never know which way it's going to turn. I'm not a person who writes by outlines. I don't ever know what my story is going to be about. So 
I mean, I just write by titles. You know, God gives me a title, and I was like, okay, what is this going to be about? And so with them, I think it's the same way as far as life is concerned. I guess what it, what this particular series shows is that, yes, you can have money. You know, we hear it all the time. Well, you know, money doesn't mean success, and money doesn't mean happiness. And I'm saying to myself, okay, well, let me uh, have a try at that, and I'll let you know. <laughs> you know, give me some money. Uh, yeah, let me let me find out for myself. Yeah, let me find out for myself. But they were the same way. Just look at Eva. Eva didn't have anything. She came, you know, from over in Bolivia, and, and Harper, her husband, was a successful doctor. He had his own TV show. He was a successful author, heart surgeon. But uh, she still battled with the fact, hey, she came from a you know, very poor family. So when you have, uh, uh, even though she had a good opportunity and he loved her, or, or so we think he does, it still didn't negate the fact that what was going on in her life and the loneliness she felt because he was away all the time. And so she acted out in other ways as far as Peyton. Peyton turned to alcohol because she had some things she was trying to hide and keep secret and didn't want anyone to know about. Then you have Misha. She was Miss. But they say goody two shoes uh, of the bunch. But Misha had a horrible, horrible secret that uh, occurred in her life when she was younger. And none of the girls know. They just think she's this first lady, successful. You know, she's the one who's always saying, oh, we're going to pray about it. I'm going to pray for you. So, but they still battled life. And that's something, you know, we no matter how much we have and don't have, one thing we cannot escape is life and what it deals us. You know yes. what? This is so true. And and even you you we like to think that if we just get enough money, we have the right relationship. We can escape it. Mm-hmm. Is that is a thought that's almost impossible? Seem like to completely get rid of. You, you keep thinking if this hadn't happened and this had happened, I would be feeling a lot better. It, it, and then you meet people who are in a situation you think you feel better in, and they feel just like you or worse, and you're like, wait a minute, how how could this be? Tell us before we start talking about, I want to talk about others of your books, but before we leave the the Real Housewives of Adversity, what, can you tell our listeners when and how did these quartet of women meet? Did they meet in high school, college? Did they grow up from little girls? No, they actually just met because Carlton, who is Misha's husband, he's a mega pastor. And so they really met at church, doing, you know, some church activities. Because, again, all of them, the husbands really especially were really involved in church. And so uh, especially Harper, the heart surgeon, I mean, he, that was his his go-to place was church. But anyway, the young ladies met there uh, through church friends and families. That's where they met. So uh, Eva hadn't been over to the United States but a few years when they first met her and the other ladies again that same circle. Oh, okay. So they met from church. Now, you keep a lot of conflict in... You keep a lot of conflict in your novels, Miss Sheila. Now, my brother, father, and me is no different. Why is Hezekiah McCoy, even while recovering from a stroke, why is he intent on give, getting even with his own sons? Ego, pride, uh, and I think with him, you know, and that's part of the My Son's Wife series. I don't know if you knew that, but that is part of the My Son's Wife series. My Brother, Father, and Me's book eight or nine, I believe, in that series. But, um, again, that's the imperfect part of us. Jealousy, envy, it can drive us to do some of the craziest things. And, it, you know, we can, it, it's oftentimes family, Denise, that really backstabs us. And mm. so with Hezekiah, you know, he feels betrayed. He feels um, men to me, uh, I, I'm imagining as a him as he is with this stroke again, the of uh, the fact that he no longer has the capability and the ability to do what he want 
do. He doesn't. He can no longer stand in that poor pit and rip folk out, <laughs> you know, and make, and bring them to the Lord. He, you know, as far as getting that money in and how he was, he can no longer do that. So that's a big, uh, a big punch to his chest that he can't do that. And then to to know that his son, his oldest son. Uh, it possibly could be betraying him or taking the spotlight off of him. He mm. just sort of loses his loses it, I guess. Wow, you know that is really interesting to to watch what happens. Again, a book that deals with family dynamic and a, a relationships you would never think would get that strained. Of, of, of you know, what do most men say when yeah. they? find out their wife or the woman in their life is pregnant is, I hope it's a boy. And so mm-hmm. you, they just see themselves playing with their sons and doing sports and doing male bonding with their sons. You never imagine that a father and a son uh, could grow up and become at odds with each other. I want to ask, what, is, what has their father done? And, again, these questions for our listeners who may not have read the book, they may be – their first time being introduced to Miss Sheila Bell, an awesome author, and to your books. What what has their father done to cause Khalil, senior pastor of Holy Rock, and his brother Xavier, to actually want to plot against their father? What what, what did I he believe, do that is so awful? I believe the fact of how he hurt their mother. Uh, he when he had the stroke. Now, before he had this stroke, okay, you know, he was able to do his thing and do his dirt, I guess, without anybody finding out, you know. he he. But when he had this stroke, it's something about, uh, you, you would think probably it would humble him, but it really just did just the opposite. And he became oh. sort of vindictive and, and mean with it. And I think it all goes back to just the fact, again, the man thing, the ego, can't do this anymore, can't walk, can't have to depend on people to to take care of me and provide for me and all. And so he began to take it out on fancy, his wife, and he really turned into a Hezekiah that people really, like you just see, you know, you wouldn't expect him to have turned into, but it affected him. And sometimes, too, and I'm just thinking, too, as a person on the outside looking in, because that's how I do with my stories is, Maybe from that stroke, we never know if some type of, if, if it affected him mentally or what. I don't know. I'm hoping that eventually Hezekiah will come back around. I don't know yet. Oh, <laughs> yeah, come on, readers. Oh, so we we have to hang around and see what happens to uh, Hezekiah. He's been doing all yeah. of this preaching. He's been doing all this preaching, and is it time now to walk out? The very things that he's been preaching, even if it feels so, it's it's it's, it's easier to say do the right thing than it is to do it. Sometimes when you get it, yeah. your backs against the wall, it is so much easier. Now, I wanted to ask you, McCoy and Graham, are they like, are they prideful men? And how? And here again, we're talking about preachers and pastors, and a lot of times you would imagine. From studying, I mean, if if a pastor gets up in the morning, he studies the word, he meditates. You have to know anybody. the The world is giving us opportunities to exercise what we believe. It, it, every experience, opportunities to exercise. So, how well have you learned patience? You're gonna be in situations that's gonna really make you have to dig deep to be patient. That's what it's, it's like a Let's see what you learned. That's almost like you've studied something and, okay, well, I'm going to put you in a situation. Let's see what you learned. And then you keep going back through it till you pass. Till you pass. Let's see what mm-hmm. you learned. It's not just about going to church and preaching and listening to something. You're going to go out in the world and get an experience. Okay, let's see what you learned. So that said, are these men prideful? And how did they become that way? They've done all this studying. You think they would know, I'm just studying a lesson like a school lesson, now i got to go out and apply it in the world. You would think they would have gotten sharp at applying it. How did they get to where they are? They're human, just like us. You know, when you look at it, yes, they stand in the pulpit, and yes, they preach the word, and yes, they help change lives of many people. 
but they're still flawed individuals. And they still have hang-ups, and they still have habits, and they still have uh, fetishes, and they still have secrets, and they still have sin. And that's what it all comes back to, that even no matter what role you play in life, whether you are the pastor of the biggest mega church and you're raking in all of this and you have children who you on the outside looking in, they're successful and they're all of this, but no one knows what type of demons you wrestle with when you are with yourself. And so I just hope that these books would not show that, uh, yeah, they study, and I really believe that they are men of God, but they're imperfect. I'm a woman of God. I, I say I'm a woman of God. But if you look in my closet, over my life, it's some things even I can't believe that I did and I have done. I'm like, whoa. You know, so I just think it's with them and with pastors or ministers, they're more on the spotlight. You know, they're out in the spotlight. So anything that they do is magnified. So I just believe that they were just men called by God. I really believe they are called by God. But they have a long way to go to get their own lives together, and they have to wrestle with it, and they are wrestling with it. And so I just hope that they able to deal with it, especially people like Hezekiah. Mm. You know, re- listen, reading your your books helps people to hopefully not just look at the characters, you know, like watching a, a celebrity or, or um, what they call it, the real, real, real live TV and saying, oh, look mm-hmm. at those people, Reality. I wouldn't have done that. But to look at it, start to examine yourself and see, okay, what am I doing that I can improve upon? And then to watch the characters develop and, and, and evolve, maybe a character who has a hard time forgiving, then they forgive. It might help a reader to actually, who's struggling with forgiveness, to be able to do that as well. Now, how many books, again, are in the My Son's Wife series? You said there are like nine books in this series? There are nine, and the tenth book should be coming out before the year's end. So there are nine so far in the My Son's Wife series, and there are four in the Real Housewives series. Okay. Now, can you introduce us to some of the, that we haven't touched on, some of the major characters in the book series? In in the My Son's Wife series? Yes. Oh, in My Son's Wife. Uh you said some of the characters that you may not be familiar with. Yeah, there are oh. some of our listeners that we haven't discussed this morning. If you could just introduce us to some of those page-turning ma- major characters. Well, you have Fancy McCoy. Fancy, well, oh, not Fancy. Yeah, Fancy McCoy, because Fancy is the now first lady of, well, she was, of Hezekiah McCoy. And so Fancy is, you know, now that Hezekiah's had the stroke and he's basically separated himself from his family, you know, you have Fancy. She's trying to deal with the fact she's no longer the first lady. She's uh, dealing with the fact that this man who uh, she's been with years and years, which is Hezekiah, has actually, you know, pushed her to the side, kicked her to the curb, and she's going to prison for this guy. So you really, Mm. readers, if you haven't read it, you need to go back because this woman has actually done time, and he has too. So uh, Fancy has her own story, and hopefully in this next book, things will begin to change for the better for her because she's having a hard time dealing with how Hezekiah has treated her, and and rightfully so. And then we'll go back to uh, Styles Graham because Styles Graham, uh, the Graham family, is the one who actually, you know, started the My Son's Wife series with Styles and his mother Audrey, who's deceased, but uh, she wanted that perfect woman for her husband. I mean, for her son, which is the beginning of the My Son's Wife series. So you have Styles. He's still in the story. But Styles has some issues of uh, forgiving himself for mistakes he's made and forgiving others. You know, he's a, a good minister, but he he doesn't want to love anymore because he's been hurt and heartbroken. And you would think as a man of God that he would be able to get past that and, and forgive others. But 
he's wrestling with that. So he's a very important character as the series goes on, as well as Xavier, the the uh, younger son of Hezekiah and Fancy. He's dealing with his sexuality, and that's another topic that um, sometimes is taboo in Christian fiction, but I, I talk about it and discuss it because it's life, and he is dealing with his um, his sexuality, and Hezekiah is really destroyed over that because when you talk about a man and son, you know, so he really doesn't like that idea that his son might uh, be homosexual or gay. So he's another character to look out for and to see how he's going to evolve as well as the last one I would say is Pastor, and that's what they call him, Pastor Graham. He's the father of Styles Graham, and he's beginning to show signs of dementia. So you'll begin to, the readers will be able to uh, learn some things. I try to, whatever I write, I try to make it as factual as possible in regard to, you know, if a person has an illness or something. So they'll be able to see the onset of what might be dementia in pastor as the book series goes on. Mm, now, thank, oh, well, those are great character descriptions, so thank you. And, you know, they always say good authors can describe their characters on a drop of a dime really well. So this is this is Sheila Bell's description of her characters in the My Son's Wife series. But, Sheila, what do readers tell you that it is about the characters that keeps turning them, keeps them coming back, that keeps them turning their pages? And who, is, who are their favorite characters? Who do readers say, this is my favorite character in the series? Well, then I, I go back to the Housewives series. Most of the people, uh, the readers that have come to me in the book clubs I met with, they uh, really sort of it, it, it uh, gave me pause because most of the people really like Peyton. Even though Peyton, like I said, she was an alcoholic. She's done some terrible things. But what people, the readers have seemed to like about Peyton is her mouth, and what I mean by her mouth is she is going to tell you like it is. And the women who read uh, the Adverse City series, most of them have come back saying that that's why they like Peyton, because she, even though she may sometimes you think speak out of turn or whatever, she is going to tell those ladies she's not going to hold back, and sometimes that's not what they want to hear. And as far as the um, My Son's Wife series, people, Hezekiah is the one that most people talk about. They okay. like him, but they don't like him. They want, they want justice. They want him to get his, his just due for the way he's done his wife and his sons. And uh, so he's the most popular character right now. In the past, it's been Deidre, even though people hated her. She's been married to Styles. Now she's after Khalil. Uh, she's been with Khalil's father. So she's, I mean, with Hezekiah. So she is um, one of those love-to-hate people. Oh, so okay. So they the main keep... characters, I think. You know, and you know what? I read this quote recently on a author's page that go on social media about authors. Um that it's the villain that pe- that keeps people coming back. It, you think it's the yep. really the good character. I mean, you, you the good character you need that one in there too, and that you have to have well-rounded characters. But is really the villain that keeps people coming back, whether it's through a TV series, a movie, or a a book. And you think about the greatest books or movies. There is a amazing villain in that story, and for some reason that the two true. together. It, 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 it's what keeps people. It's what keeps people coming back. Now, when and why? From from your books, and you've written so many books, and why I encourage people to go over to your website. And I want to give your website out again, uh, and it's SheilaWritesBooks.com. But it's, you've written so many books, but you also do other things. So I wanted to ask you: well, we have a little less than ten, about ten minutes left in the show. When and why did you found the Black Writers and Book Clubs Literary Association? You're already putting out so many books, Sheila. Um, what made you, inspired you to start this association? 
and it's literacy, the Literacy Association, BWABC okay. Literacy Association. And that was because, you know, I was found myself writing all these books. And, again, I told you about how much I uh, am involved with children. And as a writer and a speaker, you know, I, I, I have an opportunity to go before a lot of people and speak. And I began to get troubled in my spirit about this situation, and especially, I guess, where I am in Memphis or was in Memphis, where it's 65% African-Americans, yet, you know, we don't own or operate anything there. And so and I thought about the literacy rate and how high the illiteracy rate is. And so I had been working once before trying to work with a group, a literacy group in Memphis, trying to um, see what I could do to improve literacy. And that's why I got started, because I was like, okay, I'm writing all these books. But if people can't read them, if people can't understand and comprehend what we write as authors, what good is it? What What is it profiting me if no one can? And that just began to bother me and trouble me. And so I wanted to bring some awareness to illiteracy and the importance of literacy. And so that's how the festival was birthed. And I reached out to authors, and authors poured in from all across the United States. And I had the festival. It was for five years going strong. But what it was doing, too, um, you know, we went into the schools and we read and promoted literacy, especially among, our, you know, our African-American children and minorities. So that's how it got birthed. But, um that last year that I did it, I was preparing to move. And plus, it was taken away from me writing because the, the bigger the festival got, which was a blessing, but it was taken away from my true love. And so that fifth year, is just like I did with that journal. I exhaled, and it's like God gave me the release to like, okay, you finish this assignment, now get back on what I told you to do the other, you know. And so I started back with my writing and uh, picking back up with my series. So that's how that is. And I, I love the Literacy Association. It's something that still evolves. It's a nonprofit now. And people ask me all the time about the festival, which I hope in time to to resurrect it. Okay. Okay. How do you see the Internet? You know, we, with the, the Internet writing, they I've done freelance writing that they tell you, you know, you have to write real sentences short, keep your paragraphs short, write to like the fifth grade level. How do you see this? you know, this quick, short style of Internet writing impacting literacy and actually book novel writing? I think that it can be, uh, I guess it's sort of like my son would say, dumbing people down, because I think when we don't challenge people, you know, you want shorter sentence. It's just like the texting. Well, you know, texting is good, and I text all the time. But what I began to do, and this is, I guess, what tells my age is I stopped short texting. In other words, instead of year, you know, you, you put you are, you, you know, those short words, how are you, you put H-R-U. I started, yeah. I stopped that because I was like, especially, now I may do it with you, if you and I are texting, that's different in a way. But when I'm, if I'm talking to my teenage grandson or something, I just try to write it out because I'm, I'm like, Half the time, a lot of times, you know, they can grow up not even knowing how to, they think that's the right spelling. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah that's true. With the internet, yeah, and just, you know, I think with the internet, we want everything short, quick, fast, and in a hurry, just like we want life until it's time for us to check out of here. <laughs> but then you want to, oh, I wish I could stay longer. We don't ever want to <laughs> check out. Uh, and so yeah. we want to join, you know, but we dumbing down our children. They don't even, you know, did you know, as far as when I think about literacy, too, I, I'm on, on that grant, and I know we only have a couple of minutes, but just think about this. They don't even teach cursive writing in school anymore. How I know. They know how to sign their name. Yeah. How are they going to know? Yeah. Yeah, unless you just teach it at home. You have to teach. You have to, you teach and then so, so much is just digital now, but you... You just have to teach it at home. Yeah, they don't teach it. I heard that recently. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. But how are you going to teach yeah. it at home if the parents are dumbed down? That's another. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you got a good point. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, somebody might bring up a training for that and get paid 
a lot of money to do it. Yeah. Okay, the school's not doing it anymore. I'm going to set up my own training program, and you can pay me so much a month. And I'll teach your kids these, these, exactly. these things. Mm-hmm. Can you share three to four steps that you've taken that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? I believe the most effective is word of mouth. Uh, I say write a good story, write your best story, write a quality story. Learn who your target market is. I don't need to market to Denise if Denise does not like the type of books I write. I mean, you may pick it up, but if that's not what you read, I need to find out who reads what. That's your research. So I say, you know, find out your target market, write a quality book, and once people begin to read your books, um, they're going to tell somebody, whether it's good or bad, you better believe, they're going to share that word. And the next thing is something which I don't like, and that's social media. I do not, I despise social media. <laughs> right now, Why don't you like it? Is it because of the negative, the negative news on it, or what is it that turns you off from what social media? What turns me off is now, once I get to, and you hear me say this because I'm speaking positivity, once I get to the point where I can pay somebody full time to manage my social media sites, I won't have a problem with it. It's just, it's <laughs> a, it takes so much time. And oh, you know, yeah. That's, oh, that's the negative part of it. It just takes so much time, and I'm trying to write. And writing takes time, but then I have to stop and I have to be my own promoter, too. And unless I have a, a, a contract or with someone like Simon and & Schuster, or, and I've made it big, and even if I had a contract with them, then I still have to prove myself before they take on any financial obligation and responsibility to help promote and market me. So... It's just getting out there, hustling, attending events, attending festivals, making yourself known, and having a good book. Okay, okay. Are you working on any new material? And I know you are. Can you let us know? You gave us one book that's going to be coming out soon, but like the Real Housewives of Very City. When, when, are you working on any new books? And if so, can you give us a glimpse into what you're working on and when it's going to be out? And then I have one more question yes. before we go. we got about three minutes. Okay. Yes, I'm working on new stories. I have to work on the follow-up to the My Son's Wife series, and I'm also working on a series called Shorts by Sheila. Two of those books have come out called Crossroad and Forever Ain't Enough. Those are just uh, the Shorts by Sheila are books that are under 125 pages that are meant to be read quickly, you know, like if you have a doctor's appointment or if you're on your Kindle and you want a quick read while you um on the net train or whatever you go to work on, you know, or so that's those books are be coming out at least three of them this year, and then the young adult book, book four in my young adult series is called The Righteous Brothers. It should be out by Christmas. Woo, you, you ain't fooling around. Oh my goodness. So you said you're not really a fan of social media. That share, can you tell us? Where you are and where all the chef listeners can find you on social media? Yes, on social media, you can find me on Facebook at Sheila Writes Books. That's facebook.com slash Sheila, S-H-E-L-I-A, Writes Books dot com. And then you can reach me through email. That's the same, Sheila Writes Books at Yahoo or Gmail. Either one, I will get them. You can find me on Instagram at Sheila E. Bell and Twitter at Sheila E. Bell. So you don't have any excuse out there. Follow me, find me, and I will definitely <laughs> try to swim back with you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Sheila Bell. For those who d- may have joined middle or late stream, I mean, Off the Shelf airs so many different places. Uh, uh, those who and you came in on the middle of the show or you came in on the end of the show, I really encourage you, for, especially what Sheila shared when I was asking her about her childhood and where she's from, to learn more about her and her books, to when the show finishes streaming, to go back and listen to it in its entirety in the archive. You could put it on speaker and you could be doing something around your house and enjoying the interview. That's one of, that is one of the beauties 
uh, of the Internet. So I just yes. want to thank again Miss Sheila Bell. She is a best-selling Christian book author. She's written more than 20 books, has new books coming out, and she's written My Brother, Father, and Me, The Real Housewives of Adversity, My Son's Wife, My Sister, My Mama, My Wife, and she's won numerous awards, Rosa Parks Award, Christian Literary Reader's Choice Award, uh, the Christian Literary Award, AAMBC, Nate Holmes, Honor, Kindle Award, OSSA Award, and uh, several store mag awards. She's online at SheilaWritesBooks.com. It's spelled the way it sounds, SheilaWritesBooks.com. Please go check it out. She said follow her on social media. She spent all that time over there promoting her stuff, so she'd love to have you come and see her again. Uh, SheilaWritesBooks.com. Thank you so much. Sheila, and thank you to each of our off-the-shelf listeners who tune in from all over the world. And I really, really, really thank, again, our loyal listeners who've been with us for 14 yes. years. Please set on your calendar to catch off-the-shelf Books Talk Radio Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or uh, New York City time. Again, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., Eastern Standard Time or New York City time. You're going to catch off-the-shelf Books Talk Radio. Thank you, Sheila. As I as I Thank tell you, our listeners, as I tell you every week, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are incredible. And I hope one day you truly receive and believe that about awesome, amazing you. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Sheila, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> 